Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. Good morning, Grace Fellowship. How are you? It's good to, it's good to be with you. Um, I am uh, really honored to be able to continue our series in uh, John chapter 15, uh, and so we're, we're going to do that. I'd like to start off just by diving right in uh, and to read this um, passage. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, go to John chapter 15. Last week, um, Jeff brought to us uh, uh, the vine and the branches, and we're going to continue um, past that starting in verse 18. So it'll be up on the screen or using your, um, your Bibles. Let's, let's read. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated me and my father. But this is to to fulfill what is written in their law, that they hated me without reason. Uh, If you can try to imagine uh, being the disciples. Oh, I wanted to, yeah, I'm sorry. I wanted to read these couple verses here in the beginning again because this is where I'm going to spend most of my time um, talking about is if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. Uh, again, if you imagine you were the disciples um, and Jesus had, uh, was sit, sit, seated with you and talking to you and he was talking about the vine and the branches and he was saying uh, these things like, look, if you're connected to me, I'll be connected to you. If you love me, you love the Father and my Father loves you, right? And I think at the very end, uh, this is my command to you and he sends, love each other, right? You could see the disciples to be in just like, this is the guy we get to follow. I mean, this is awesome. And then Jesus goes, uh, by the way, the world is going to hate you. They, I'm, I'm the son of man. I'm perfect, right? And they're going to hate me without cause, without reason. Uh, you, they're going to hate you also. Just try to imagine, you know, the disciples again being like, oh, yeah, love and connection and the vine and the branches. Like, this is awesome. Yeah, the world's going to persecute. Say again? Right? You know, j- later, later in the beginning, towards the end of 15, the beginning of 16, Jesus is going to go, hey, and also there's going to be a point where people are going to kill you and they're going to think that they're offering up sacrifices to God. You know, and you can see some of the disciples being like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, as they slowly kind of like, but no, of course not. Like they, but how did they process that? You know what I mean? Understanding like, what is this going to be like? And so, of course, we, we know how the story continues, right? I mean, the apostles in the first century church were um, hated and persecuted and hunted and martyred because of their faith. And yet, Jesus would say after these verses here, I'm not, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you alone. You will have an advocate. The Holy Spirit will be with you. And so what we see in the first century church is that they were persecuted and martyred and killed because of their faith. But because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and and the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church grew, did it not? 
And, you know, an, another sermon or a uh, Sunday school, you know, th- we could go through the entire history of the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world through time. And just like we see here in, in the Bible, that uh, even today, right? E- even today, there are millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are hated because of their faith, persecuted because of their faith. And yet we continue to see that because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the church continues to grow. Jesus doesn't know how to do anything but be victorious. Amen? Okay, and yet, when I read these verses, 21st century American, living in York, and I read these verses about how the world is gonna hate me, sometimes, maybe it's just me, but I have a hard time figuring out how or if I should apply these verses to my life. Look, Jesus is giving the apostles a warning, right? Like, look, I'm gonna be with you. I'll never be without you. I command you to love one another. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. But the world is gonna hate you as they hated me without cause. And I look at this and I go, well, what does this have to do with me? How do I take this warning when I don't daily feel persecution for my faith. Do you guys know what I mean? How do I heed this warning? And there's a couple things that that make this difficult, and I think you'll understand. Number one, over the past many, many, many decades of our country, people have, or sociologists have kind of said that we're in a cultural war, right? Have you heard that before? A cultural war, meaning that people agree less and less on a shared moral basis that our understanding of justice or truth or what's right or what's wrong, right action, wrong action, all of those things that we agree less and less with our neighbors and people in our community and people in the country or whatever it is. We just don't share as much of this foundational understanding of truth. And made uh, worse is that this idea of individualism and relativism is just growing deeper and deeper. Deeper. I mean, every generation, this is just being infused into the psyche of our country. This idea that the most important thing is me. And so as a bunch of me's continue to live uh, around us, and us included, when we're trying to figure out what's true and what's right, you have seen this, that more and more that, that any basis for justice or truth and all of those things come from this idea of my individual unique perspective. You hear it in our culture, right? Let your, you know, follow your heart. Hey, that's your truth, but that's not my truth, right? So we agree less on, and less and less foundationally with, with those around us, this, and this idea that what's true and what's right is, can be based upon my perception and my unique experiences, and yet made worse is that despite those differences and that we see eye to eye with less and less people, we were all wired for community, wired for connection, wired for fellowship. God made us that way. So we're not connected to our brothers and sisters in our community as much because we're agreeing with our neighbors less and less, and yet we still want to feel connected. And so individualism has sort of given birth to like community's dark twin called tribalism. Tribalism is this idea that we begin to identify with groups of people that I I don't know, but I agree with. Tribalism is grounded in who we distrust. When friendships and group identities are formed no longer by geographic or communal ties, but instead by political or social outlook. Suspicion towards institution grows and toward our neighbors. The result is that we become increasingly defined by who we oppose than by who we really are. And thus our problem is this, I brought you through all of that, here is my point. How do I apply this to my life? The world will hate you, the world will show you disdain. And my problem is, is that there is disdain and mistrust and contempt everywhere. Using Jesus' warning here as a litmus test to whether or not we are believing or doing the right things is very difficult. 
For every wrong or right action or every wrong or right belief, there is a tribe that you can access to affirm those things. And therefore, you will always have a them, the other tribe, a them who hates you, a them to chastise and mock, a them to be morally superior to. It's hard to listen to someone who finds you contemptible. And it's hard to find the will to listen to someone who you harbor utter disdain for. It's hard to converse when people are not arguing in the pursuit of truth, but instead are alert only to the signs of tribal identity. So, whether someone hates you or not, shows you contempt or not, doesn't like you, may have absolutely nothing to do with your faith. Or at least, it's very hard to distinguish, right? So what am I supposed to do with these verses? (laughs) about the world's hate and disdain towards me. And this is what I'd like to do with you this morning. Instead of focusing on trying to understand uh, what the world's hate would look like or how I'm supposed to receive that or whether or not I'm being hated because of my faith or for some other reason, I want to focus not so much on what Jesus is talking about but who he's talking to. Who is he offering a warning to? His disciples. He's giving it specifically to them. And so what I'd like to walk with you with this morning is what makes a disciple unique? I won't be able to talk about everything that makes a disciple unique, but I'd love to pull out a few things about a disciple that Jesus would give this warning to them. Because if I'm to understand the world's disdain, if I'm gonna understand why the world might hate me or show me contempt, I wanna make sure it's because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And so this is what I'd like to do. Um, I asked Pastor Mark for permission to leave the book of John and go into the book of Luke. He said, yes, that's fine, okay? In Luke chapter five, and I'm not gonna put it up on the screen, I'm gonna articulate and talk to you about some of these stories, because I just want you to stick with me. I didn't actually ask Mark for permission, I'm just being, okay. So, But I want to go to Luke chapter 5 because there's all these stories that are sort of stacked on top of each other that I love. And I'd like to pull out of each of these stories, out of, out of the book of Luke, I think something that makes disciples unique and what sets them apart. That what sets apart my brothers and sisters in Christ from the rest of the world. So let's pray and then we'll begin to do that. God, I thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be just at work in our hearts and in our minds and that we would just learn more about you, learn more about who we are in you. God, we thank you for the privilege of doing this. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning of Luke is a really um, common story that many of you, if not all of you, have heard. The miraculous catch. You've heard it, right? Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Jesus is always surrounded by a crowd. He has just an eclectic group of people always surrounding him. They were the religious, the irreligious. I mean, it didn't, it didn't matter. They wanted to know what he was going to say, and they wanted to see what he was going to do. And this crowd is getting so big that he winds up, uh, uh, you know, pu- literally pushed against the sea, And who does he, uh, you know, sort of come up to is a bunch of fishermen, right? And they're cleaning their nets. It's in the morning. They fish at night because that's the better time to fish. They had, we we learned that they've had an unsuccessful night of fishing. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to borrow your boat, push away, uh, out out of ways here, and I'm going to teach the crowd from the boat. Uh, What I love is that Simon, Simon Peter, uh, you know, he, he, you know, Jesus was a recognized obviously very powerful, well-known uh, rabbi. And so he, uh, of course, he, he complied and said, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do that. And so Jesus gets in his boat um, and Jesus is teaching uh, the crowd. And I, I, would, I would imagine that Peter would think that through this whole thing that he is completely uh, irrelevant uh, in this process, right? He's just a body to get a boat out. And then when Jesus is done teaching, again, I just think it's great, you know, and he's like, you know, amen. Uh, throw the, no, the throw the nets on the other side of the boat, you know, and 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 Peter looks you know looks to Jesus and is very honest uh, with Jesus. 
Peter always speaks up. If you're a student of God's word in the New Testament, like, you know, there's the guy who always says something first. It's always Peter, right? And, uh, and so Peter goes, Lord, you know, uh, we've been fishing all night. We've been unsuccessful. We've already, uh, you know, cleaned the nets. I'd like to get home and have a cup of coffee, you know, on and on. And uh, he goes, but look, because you said so, I will. And so Peter, what happens? Peter throws the net on the other, other side of the boat and they catch so many fish that, you know, it begins to sink the boat. So he texts all of his friends and they come over with their boats, right? And, and there's just, so, just so much fish. Uh, and there's just this abundant, abundant catch. Unbelievable. And what does Peter do? Do you know? He drops to his knees and says, he says, Lord, he goes, depart from me. Jesus, get out. I, I was listening to someone talking about this sermon, one of my friends, and he said, Peter, it, you know, just loves to tell Jesus how to be Jesus. And he, do, he does that his whole ministry uh, with him, you know, and he just, he just falls on his face and goes, he goes, Jesus, get out of here. He's like, I'm just unworthy, like, leave me. And, and what is, you know, and I just think, when you hear that, I would just wonder what your thoughts are uh, about uh, Peter's reaction. And yet, I, I sympathize a little bit with Peter, right? Jesus is a rabbi. Peter's a fisherman. Stay in your lane, right? Okay? And like, what, what would that have been like for Peter? And yet, I think we know this. Like, man, like when we're in middle school, when we're in high school, like, we're trying to figure out kind of where we fit in, right? You know? Where, where like, what, what's my edge? You know, what, what, how do I bring value to the community around me, whether or not it's in my family or in my school? You know, there's all the cliches, right? Like, okay, like, you know, years and years go by and you're like, all right, I'm the athlete. I'm good at this, right? This is where my value comes from. This is where my worth comes from. This is, okay, I'm gonna put my happiness in this and my identity in this, all right? All right, hey, I'm the funny one. I can make people laugh. Or like, I'm academic. I get good grades. Um, on and on and on, we try to figure out who we are. And then this is why college is such a, like an identity crisis for so many young people because what happens is you get to college and you were the athlete, right? And then who do you meet? You meet people who can just run laps around you, right? Or you were the, you were the good student, I mean, straight A's, and you meet people far smarter than you. Man, you were, you were beautiful, attractive, the popular one, and then you, all of a sudden, you're surrounded by people, again, who are far more beautiful than you, far more attractive, far more popular. And then you just have this, like, identity crisis. And, of course, it stops at college, right? Like we, we don't continue to try to figure out where our worth is and where we put Of course not. It just continues. All right, I'm going to be the best mom I can be. Like, that's what I am. There's a lot of things in my life that are not right, but I'm like the best mom. And then you go to some new ministry and you're like, I am not the best mom. You know, right? right? And you're like, and it, like it, it, I'm a business, I'm, it's about my success. Like, I'm, I'm really good. Like, the bottom line, on and you, you guys get it, right? Always searching for where we put it, our identity. Where do I find my worth? Where, where does my value come from? And when, when, when we're surrounded by others who, who have found more success, more beauty, more profit, right? But whatever it is, like, I think we're, we're shaken because like, oh, gosh, I thought like, I thought I was doing okay. Now imagine meeting Jesus, right? Like, I'm a good person, right? And then you meet the son of man. How do you think that makes you feel? Now try being Peter. I'm a fisherman. Now, listen, later in human history, like, we just toss out people's last names and we would just give people last names that they're, it's their vocation, right? It's like, and you are now Smith, right? Because people's identities, people, everything became you know, behind their vocation and what they were good at. And so here you have Peter, a fisherman, and a rabbi is, is standing in his boat and a rabbi says, hey, throw the nets over here. Peter's the fisherman. And I think he just goes through this like self-quake, this identity crisis right in front of Jesus Christ. Who am I compared to who you are? And I think that we're a lot like that. 
And what does Jesus respond? What is Jesus' response to Peter? You know, when Peter gets on the ground and says, like, oh my gosh, God, I'm just so not worthy. What does Jesus do? Like, kicks him and says, that's right. You know? No. Like, of course not. Right? This is the coolest part is that Jesus doesn't mind this identity crisis taking place in Peter's heart right now. Do you know that? He's not ashamed of him. He doesn't condemn him. Do you know what he says? Hey, I have something I want you to do with me, me and you. We're going to change the world. Well, I'm going to change the world, and I'm going to invite you into it. Come, follow me. I'm going to have a fishing beyond your fishing. Do you see? Come, um, you're no longer just a fisherman. You're going to become a what? A fisher of men. And so it says that the disciples walked away. And what did they walk away from? And we're talking about identity and where we put our value and purpose. The, Peter and, the, and, and these other disciples, they walk, who would become disciples, they, they walk away from probably the greatest catch of their entire careers, right? Like this would have absolutely changed their lives forever. So if there was any a day to put their identity and value and worth into what they did and their job, all right, that was the day and they were willing to turn their back on it and follow Jesus. Now, listen, if we're, if we're lazy uh, or maybe even just confused sometimes, we can look at that and go, oh, well, then the lesson for me here is that if I'm to meet Jesus, I have to turn my back on my job to follow him, right? But there's really not a ton of evidence. There's no, really no evidence in a sense that, that, that that's the main application here, Right? Of course not. There are, there are tent makers and, and all sorts of people who in vocation allow their faith to impact what they do and how they do it. So instead of thinking about the disciples just turning away from their jobs, I'd like to instead to think about it that they're just turning away from an old identity, right? These nets just representing where they used to put their, their, all of their value, all of their worth, all of their, you know, all of their time, all of their self-worth and purpose. They turned their backs on it and followed Jesus. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. That's where I find my worth. That's where I place my value. All in him. He's the only thing that will love me back. He's the only thing that lasts forever. And he's the only thing that can never be taken away from me. Jesus is saying, I have a fishing beyond your fishing. A wealth beyond your wealth a beauty beyond your beauty, a success beyond your success. Real fishing will be more than just this. We're gonna go change people's lives for eternity. So the first mark of a disciple, okay, I'm bringing you back. So we're trying to figure out how to, we're, all, we're still trying to figure out how to take on the world's disdain. So I said I wanted to say what, what, what makes a disciple unique? And so one of the things that makes a disciple unique from the rest of the world is identity, okay, that I am given a new identity. And listen, I've, I've heard um, Ben and Mark and Pastor Jeff and, and Phil, all of them talk about this, that my identity is not simply in my belief of Jesus Christ, right? My identity through, I am saved by grace, my identity is in him, but my identity is in my following of Jesus Christ. That's what united these disciples. That is what made them brothers uh, uh, in, in Christ, is their following of Jesus Christ. And fishing would no longer own their worth and their value. Nothing can own me anymore. Not success, not beauty. My sin does not define me. Good things can't define me. Bad things won't define me either. We're encouraged to leave our nets behind. In John 15, I left those verses up there. It says, you do not belong to the world you see? So if the world hates you, if the world has contempt for you, it's because you have placed your identity in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing can own me anymore. No tribe, no company, no party, not people's acceptance, not fear, not social media, nothing. When Jesus Christ is dis describing the hatred of the world, he's not talking about tribe versus tribe, us versus them. Party versus party. It's not about that. See, an example that we can all understand is, is a, a, a businessman, someone who has found success in vocation, better than all of his competitors, made more money than he ever thought he could, 
And that's where his value is. That's where he, he might not know it, but that's where he places his self-worth. And then one day he meets Jesus Christ and it changes his life. And he has a new identity. Not just by sheer will, but by the grace of God, his identity is now in Jesus and in following him. And so does he have to shut down his business? No, but now his faith will inform everything he does. Profit, business, and competition and success will no longer own him anymore. And when believers, when brothers and si- my brothers and sisters in Christ, when you all step into the world and you no longer let the kingdoms of man own you, you see, you become suspect to the world. Does that make sense? You no longer follow the rules because you won't be owned by those things. And so if we're to take on the world, this is one of the ways that the world can hate you or show you contempt or disdain is because your identity is in Christ. You won't be owned. So my question for you this morning is what owns you? Or at least if your identity is in Jesus Christ, what is that thing that is always battling for your identity? Always trying to steal back your self-worth to say that this is what I bring. This is how I value. That my, my, my value comes from my parenting. My value comes from my great family. My value comes from my success or my grades or my athleticism or my beauty or my acceptance, my power, my influence, that this is why I'm worth something. What tries to own you? Our aim as individuals and as a community isn't to be, here's my point, is that as we put our identity in Jesus Christ, does that that mean that we then become apathetic to all of these other things in the world? No way. We should love our families We should let our faith inform the way we go about doing our jobs. We should care about the welfare of our schools, our community, and our nation, and on and on, but none of those things define us. They shouldn't own us. Our identity as a body of believers isn't to be defined by our mutual positions. It's not defined by who we oppose or who opposes us. It's certainly not about our allegiance to the kingdoms of man. No, we are unified in our new identity and our mutual following of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus gave this warning to his disciples, he was talking to a group of people who had a unique idea unlike anyone, a a unique identity unlike anyone else in the world. The second story in Luke 5 uh, happens directly afterwards and a leper runs to Jesus. Now, Uh, then they would call leprosy any assortment of diseases and skin diseases or anything that people thought that were contagious, you understand? And so to be a leper meant that you were kicked out of the places of worship and community that you belonged to. Do you understand? Like they, they were complete outcasts and complete rejects sent to the outskirts of the village or the town or the city in which they lived. And these people were so hated that if they stepped anywhere near community, historians would say that what they would do is they would have to shout, ring a bell, or shout unclean as they got anywhere near someone else. Unclean. Unclean. Lest what? Lest they likely be stoned or killed for being near others. And what does this leper do? He runs into town, kneels at Jesus' feet. And when I love, he risks everything to be at Jesus' feet. He risks everything to be there. And what I love about this man, what I love about him is he still says in humility, Jesus, if you are willing, heal me. You know what he doesn't do? Like run at his feet and look around and be like, quick, quick, Jesus, quick, 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 you know? Like look at it, look at it, fix it, fix it, fix it, you know, before, you know, before people see what's going No, he goes, Lord, if you are willing, would you heal me? He knew, even this man knew that Jesus owed him nothing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches down Actually, I was, you know, was going to say you know, what, what Jesus didn't do. You know what Jesus didn't do? 
snap his fingers and go, healed. Because he could have, right? But what does Jesus do? He, he stands the man up and he touches him. Now, what was the reaction of the disciples in the crowd around when they saw that? Do you think they all, they all went, oh, oh, that's wonderful. Look, we didn't expect that. <laughs> Shocked, disgusted, angered. Did the disciples even feel a little betrayed by Jesus in that moment? Like, how could you? I thought we were about to go do something incredible and now you're like one of them. Jesus touches them. But of course, thing, of course, dead things don't stay dead when Jesus touches it. And that man did not make Jesus unclean, but Jesus' cleanliness was imputed on this man. But does he just heal his skin in this story, if you know it? Think about what that must have meant for that man to have his coverings taken off in front of the entire community that had called him nothing but reject and outcast, to be touched by Jesus Christ and to be healed. See, Jesus would restore people. And so we have a new identity. That what, One of the things that makes a, a disciples unique is their unique identity in Jesus Christ, that nothing will own them. And the second thing that I think this morning that makes disciples unique is their purpose that they would have through Jesus Christ. Because who was watching but these disciples and watching not just who he loved, because who did Jesus love? What were they seeing? He loved the marginalized. He loved the outcast, the rejects. He, he loved the sexual outcasts, the political outcasts, the racial outcasts. Do you see? Religious, on and on and on, the marginalized and the, those who were pushed aside, those who had been discarded and considered unworthy by those around them. That's who Jesus loved. But it wasn't just who he loved, it's how he did it. He was so deeply personal in everything he did. He would touch those that no one else would touch. He would associate with those that no one would get caught hanging out with, especially Christian. Are you listening? Who would he make angry more than anyone? Religious people, right? He saw those who no one else would see. He ate meals and shared blessings with everyone's them. You see? He was so deeply personal. He touched, he cried, he cared so deeply about people's bodies, about their minds, about their relationships, about their pain, about their hurt. He, he cared about their hunger and their thirst. He met needs. Man, how, how appropriate that we just watched the video of how a few resources could change those children's lives, right, as they get access to clean water. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that Jesus deeply cared about and yet he never stopped there, did he? You see, J Jesus didn't ignore people's um, earthly needs and physical needs just to be able to offer them sort of theological truth and, or eternal truth. He always met people's needs and loved them and cared for them. It's just that he always went deeper. He offered them more. He said, you're thirsty? Then I'll give you a drink, but I'm here to be your living water. You're hungry? I'll give you bread. But do you understand that for eternity, I want to be the bread of life to you? He cared. He, Jesus was communicating over and over and over to people and to his disciples that there is something worse than being a leper. There's something worse than being a reject. There's something worse than being outcasted or, 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 or being paralyzed. There's something worse than death and it's not knowing the God that made you. You see? And that's what the disciples watched Jesus do. And Jesus was saying, he was looking to the disciples. And by the way, Jesus was looking to the Pharisees in deep compassion and just going, do this with me. All of this is yours. Do this with me. And so the disciples were invited into radical generosity, radical loving, radical care, all for his Father's glory and purpose. Fishers of men casting a really wide net for the lost. 
to draw men and women from the depths into a new world, a new kingdom, by force, by government, by coercion or manipulation? No, but by constant service, love, and sacrifice. And so that's why as Christians we say, God, give me your eyes so that I can see who you want me to see. Give me your heart, God, because I, I, I wanna know what breaks your heart. I want my heart to break for what breaks yours. God, give me your hands so that I can do the things that you're already at work doing, Lord, invite me into it. You know, uh, this summer after the pandemic, it was awesome because we finally got to, you know, meet with kids. And um, I say after the pandemic, but we, we finally got to go to camp, okay? Uh, and, we, and we loaded buses um, with students who uh, we had spent years getting to know in a really difficult season. Um, and boy, I, I, you know, just heading to this camp trip, I felt like we took the right kids. You know, just kids that I knew that like they love their leaders and the leaders love them. And yet I knew that a lot of the students we took were just, um, did not know the Lord. You know, we say in Young Life that like our aim, those who we're trying to seek more than anything, who we sort of program so many things around is we're trying to reach the furthest out. Does that make sense? We took this incredible trip and our, our, um, our leaders were all meeting together about halfway through the week and we were just doing big adventure with students and having just incredible fun. And, you know, and there was just a speaker who was articulating the gospel um, in a way just made for students and leaders like talking and dialogue with. And I, what I love, what I love is just that leaders, you know, are, you know, every year, no matter how long they've been doing it, if they're, especially if they're new, they're just like, I can't believe these students are willing to talk to me about what's going on in their life like this. Like, they, I'm just, I can't believe how open they are with me. I can't believe I'm, I'm able to share my faith with them in a way that they really want to know and they really want to hear. But one of the things that our leaders said that they were hearing in every cabin, and it was crazy because it was almost word for word the same between the girls' cabin and the guys' cabin, is there were students, one after another, looking to leaders you know, after talking about the gospel and talking about who Jesus was, and they kept saying this. They said, why has no one ever told me this before? Whew. All right, so you're up here watching Matt Von Stein get a little choked up, but here's why. There's a reason I tell you that story. When I hear a kid say that, yo, that gets me worked up, right? When I hear a student say like, man, no one ever told me this before. You know, my perception of lost kids is that like there's like, you know, this massive wall between them and faith or them and the Lord. And then I just, every year, I just get to see the Holy Spirit do what he always does is that he's just so desperate to pour his grace into these kids' lives and they're so hungry for it. And so, listen, the reason I share that for you is that one of the taglines of Young Life is that you were made for this, Right? And so when, when, when I'm having that sort of experience, I know that in this season of my life, like God has given me, a, he, he's given me his eyes for young people. And he's given me more and more his heart for them. And so when I, hear, when I see a kid or I hear a kid say that to me, I just go, man, I could do this for my whole life. You were made for this. And I want you to know Grace Fellowship. When we think about a unique purpose, I think so are you, all of you to love the lost. Each of you is wired differently. Each of you, God gives his eyes and his hands and his hearts in a unique way. So my question for you, if identity was what owns you, my question for you in purpose is who do you see? Who do you see that no one else sees? Who is around you that no one else will get near? But you can. Who is cast out Lonely, hungry, marginalized, and pushed aside. Look, and at any time a preacher gets up and talks about the, the going, the doing, the works of our faith, the purposes of our faith, right? This is, this is the point where, you know, you, you, the, the crowd kind of gets split in half between may the guilt be with you, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm feeling the feels and I feel really guilty about that, right? And then also people who take on a burden that they shouldn't. And so the idea is, 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 is this, that some of us, 
It's not guilt, but some of us, I think, continually need to be encouraged and charged, okay? Hear me, that if you would place yourself in front of people whose needs you can meet, I'm telling you something alive is just gonna wake up inside of you. And you're gonna discover more of who you are in this purpose that God has given you. Who do you see? But then I don't know why it is, but like I just, when I was writing this and I was working through this, I just thought about moms. That every time they come to a, a sermon where someone's saying, hey, you gotta go love the lost. Like love those around you, love your neighbors, like feed and, and all, of, all of those things. I've just heard so many moms in my life, they feel so guilty because they're just like, gosh, I just can't, I just feel like I'm not doing enough, you know? All I'm, you know, I just have to take care of these five human beings here, you know? I don't know why this was on my heart, but I just want you, I don't know if there's like a mom here or two. I just want you to know, I think the rest of us need to use you as an example of what it looks like to serve and sacrifice for those who God has called you to love. All right? Yeah, sure. I just think that sometimes we just feel so guilty when God has so clearly placed something in front of you and going, like, love and touch those who no one else can touch and love like you. But I think some of us need to be challenged too. Who do you see? And I love that we're into this everyday discipleship that our pastors are talking about, this idea that it's not always the programs that the churches will put on and invite you into. Sometimes it's just your neighbor that you have seen day after day. So the point isn't here to use guilt, but to encourage each of you that you are wired to be fishers of men. That is not a role, listen, this is not a role relegated to a special group of people on church payroll. It's you. Influence in the world, the real kind of influence, the kind of influence that has depth doesn't come from just this pulpit. It, come, it doesn't come from social media, it comes from you. Disciples of Jesus Christ investing and pouring into the lives around you. Real influence doesn't always have to mean adding something to your schedule or adding a dinner to your schedule, but instead maybe just adding a chair. You don't have to be a theologian. Just being a calm human being who honors people in your speech and doesn't complain about everything is an incredible Christian apologetic in a day of constant outrage. Who do you see? And I guarantee you, your experience will be like those leaders at camp that as you invite your neighbor into dinner, and some of you are already doing this. I think about what you all have done at the Adopt-A-Block. Just, I think that was yesterday, right? Pouring into the community around you. And, I, and I, they would tell you the same thing. The closer you get to those who Jesus has given you a unique sight for, a unique vision for, you will be amazed at how hungry they are for Jesus through you. And how desperate God is to pour his grace on their lives through you and through your story and through your faith and through your obedience. And so the warning that Jesus gave his disciples about the, the disdain and hate of the world, a unique identity, a unique purpose. You know what's so cool about the, about the identity and purpose that God gives you? It's eternal. It's unchanging. The world is constantly changing all around you. These two things will never change. To seek and love the lost and to know that your identity is in Jesus Christ alone. And so why does this matter? Hear me. If I'm gonna take on the world's disdain, I wanna know that it's because of his name and his purposes. Do you see? If living in the freedom of my identity in Christ causes the world to hate me, so be it. If participating with God in the sorts of things his son is at work doing in the world causes the world's contempt, fine. But I think there are things that, that we need to know is that one, um, there's no reason for us ever to enjoy the world's disdain. Does that make sense? To go after it, to seek it, to be proud of receiving um, the, the, the world's hatred towards us. That makes no sense. Jesus never did that. Jesus loved the people who hated him. He was not proud of their disdain towards him. It didn't make him morally superior. He loved them. He didn't go seeking after it. But some of us also need to hear this. 
Don't avoid the world's disdain either. Jesus stood in front of Pontius Pilate. He stood in front of the Sanhedrin. The apostles in the first church would stand in constantly in front of those who were telling them to keep their faith to themselves. And the answer was, I will not. And Jesus said exactly who he was, no matter what the consequences were. So we don't seek it, we don't enjoy it, but we absolutely don't avoid it either. And because this is a warning to us, I think Jesus was hoping for his, his disciples and for us that we wouldn't be shocked by it. Jesus witnessed to people and helped them, and some of them who he helped received his care in relationship, in love, and others who he served crucified him. And so Jesus said after these verses, I'm telling you this, that one, you will not be alone. I'm leaving you an advocate, but I'm telling you this so that you won't be discouraged, so that you won't fall away. Don't be shocked by it. And lastly, look, some of us need to hear this. I need to hear this. So as I say that, this is a challenge for me too, but I know, th I know this is true. If the world hates you, be careful not to use Jesus as your scapegoat. Sometimes the world might hate us because we're obnoxious. Sometimes the world might hate us because we lack tact and we're ignorant or unkind. All of us will be guilty of being poor ambassadors of Jesus Christ in our lives. Let's own that and not claim it's because of Jesus' righteousness. But I also, as I close, want to recognize with you that there are some of you here who, because of your unique identity in Jesus Christ and because of your unique purposes that he has placed on you, those who he's asked you to serve, the things that he's asked you to go, the nets that he's asked you to walk away from, that whether in your work or in your family or in your schools, maybe in your marriage, your relationship with your children, that you do face disdain and contempt because of your identity in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will hear the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples, was you are not alone and do not be discouraged. I am always with you. What would we hear? You can be struck down, but what? Not destroyed. You will never be abandoned. You see, if I'm going to put my identity, if some of you sitting here, like, how do I, I mean, how do I trust God with this? Like, if I'm, if I'm trying to be honest, like, the, the world does compete with my identity. I, I'm constantly being pulled into thinking that my value is somewhere else. That the, the kingdoms of man and, and, and how I use my time, like, I'm distracted from the purposes that God has, has called me into. Sometimes I'm blind to the people that Jesus wants me to see. Like, how do I do this? And Jesus Christ, in the end of his ministry, would turn his eyes, his earthly ministry, would turn his eyes to Jerusalem, and he would go where? But he would go to the cross, where ahead of you, he would take on all the disdain, all of the hate, all of the contempt. He would be mocked, beaten, and murdered. And he would pray for those who were doing it. But he would defeat my contempt, my disdain for God on the cross. And three days later, when he rose again, now, if my identity is in Jesus Christ, that means that my identity is in him not just because I'm trying, it's not just my will, but it's by grace that he's gonna hold on to me, that when God sees me, he sees his son, and there is nothing I can do to change that. My identity is in him, in him alone. And so while the world competes with me, beauty, success, grades, on and on, whatever it is, I can know that because of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I am always his. And I will not let the world own me. Nothing. We can live in our identities not by sheer will but by the power and blood of the Lamb. We can live in our purposes because it is not me but Christ who works through me. I don't save people. 
Jesus does. But man, he wants to use me, my story. God, I owe you everything. Use me. It's the power of the Spirit in me and through me, in you and through you. You were made for this. And lastly, no matter how the world responds, we can take it on because he took it all on he took it all on himself on our behalf and he will never leave us or forsake us. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world does to those who are in him, Jesus Christ on the cross and through the grave and his resurrection meant that even death itself cannot separate me from God. That death just itself becomes a dark hallway into the very presence of my king. And so I will live in my identity in him and in my purpose, and that's what makes me a disciple. That's what makes you my brother and sister in Christ is our unique following of Jesus Christ and doing the things and participating in the things that he's asked us to do. And so as Andrew and Leah lead us in worship, I'll invite you, we'll, we'll dim some of the house lights, and I invite you to um, just listen to this song, to sing along if you feel led. You can stand if you want to, or you can remain uh, seated. I hope you will consider those questions that I've asked you as we worship. Where is your identity? Who do you see? And don't ever forget, you are not alone. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is with you. And I think in that way, we can take on whatever the world throws at us. Let's worship together. We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.